Welcome to Good Life. I'm Dean Wilson. You're going to love today's program. Fatima Oliver is with me. She is an amazing woman. Uh, she's written a book called The Prescription is in the Dirt about her life. She has been through enormous suffering, tragedy, abuse, and difficulty, and she has really emerged uh, on the other side with great freedom. And she's an amazing person. So you're going to love it. Fatima Oliver, The Good Life is next. Welcome to Good Life. I'm Dean Wilson. So glad you joined us. You can always find us at goodlifetelevision.org. That's where we are. And we're also on the social media platforms. I'm so grateful uh, and excited about my guest today. Fatima Oliver is with me. Fatima, welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to share the platform. Yeah, we are. Uh, we're excited to have you. And your story is incredible. And I want to just have you tell it, you know, is this kind of the the main part of this time? Because it's, it's an amazing story. Um, obviously, we're all still in process. And, you know, it's a, it's a story, you know, in progress. But from where you kind of have been and what you've been through to today is is an amazing journey um i will mention this now and again later but but fatima has written a book uh the book is called the prescription is in the dirt great title she'll tell us about that title later but uh i encourage you to look at that the prescription is in the dirt by fatima oliver so fatima let's start with just your story and you know, I know you were you were the only girl with a bunch of brothers, and, and you, you, you made a comment to me that there was no kind of precious princess dynamic with all boys and you. It was actually very much the opposite. Talk about your upbringing and kind of your road, especially early on. Well, um, again, thank you for having me, and you're and you're right, and. Um, I, I wish <laughs> I would have been treated like a princess, um, but but I, I grew up with some with some rough boys, and um, we grew up in the inner city in Las Vegas. Um, definitely not what you see on TV, and um, with a single parent. And my mom, she was tough as nails sometimes um, to a fault, but I really believe it had to do with the frustration that she had to endure as a single parent with no assistance from the fathers. Um, going through a, a life that is, you know, for all intents and purposes, unfair and having to raise four children on our own. So there was a lot of roughness, a lot of frustration behind discipline and behind directions and comments. And um, it wasn't always the case, but most of the time, um, that's how it was in my home. And with, I, I think it also played a part with being in a home with all boys and a mom who had to raise boys into men, um, especially, you know, black men, um, she had to be so tough and stern. And I was just that one that was kind of, for lack of a better way to say it, collateral damage. And um, I was raised the same way they were raised. I was treated the same way they were treated. There was not room for emotion and consoling. Um, so 
um, tears, sadness, disappointment, um, frustration, feeling left out or insecure or, or withdrawing. None of that was, um, it, it, it just wasn't a priority to review. It was every day was a survival. My mom had to survive every day. And I really think that that type of culture and, and mindset and spirit um, just kind of filtered to to the children. So growing up um, from a teenager to a young adult and trying to find my own way, I definitely, I, I would even say um, through till my 40s, um, I carried that with me as far as I feel like I could survive much of anything. I've been thrown a lot of different challenges. I've survived them. But dealing with the oppression or the emotional um, connection with those experiences definitely, definitely had never tapped into those emotions. And um, after so long, what you don't deal with, it just kind of blows up in your face and and, and I, I say spills out on everybody in, in every facet. And that's exactly what happened with me. And, and I, I want to just, I mean, again, not to, to dwell on the tough parts of your story, but I think it's important that people hear the truth and you're willing to to be vulnerable, which I think is phenomenal. Uh, well, I'm like, I wrote the book now. I might as well talk about it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 yeah. it's out there now. <laughs> good, point, good point. Good point. So at, at age two, you were severely burned. Um, and you had a, a difficult stepfather uh, that, that, that caused some pain. And then you, you, you know, you dealt with other forms of abuse. But... Um, Talk a little bit about from there to the point of losing your own child. You've been through the experience of losing a child. So walk us through kind of just this journey, that kind of painful part of your story that that uh, was so difficult. Well, I, I mean, I, I, unfortunately, you know, I hate that this is the case, but most of my life, like you said, at two years old, I was burned on 25% of my body, primarily my legs and my feet. So most of my life, I felt sadness. I felt um, outcast. I felt um, picked, well, I was picked on. And so there was just a lot of sadness around me. It just felt natural to feel that way. I didn't know another way to be. So um, going into, um, you know, and, and, and being raised um, with two stepfathers, actually, one was physically abusive, another one was sexually abusive. And so that was just my life. That was my atmosphere, the culture in which I grew up in. So going from uh, my mom's home into would be my husband's home, um, really, I felt like I was escaping um, the possibility of other tumultuous things happening um, in my life in relation to uh, my stepfather. I didn't realize that I was running into something just as horrible. Later on, as you work through and you process things, um, you realize, you know, high insight is wonderful. Too bad it's not there when you need it. <laughs> right? but, um, but so for me, it was it was one of those things that I later realized that the personality of um, my mother was pretty much what I married in my um, ex-husband. And so the 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 uh, mental um, torment and the antagonism and cruel words and mind games, manipulation, strong manipulation is the type of relationship I wound up in. And when um, I began to find my voice um, the Bible says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Well, there is a cost for everything. 
And when I started to come out of my shell from harboring a lot of inside stuff and talking to myself internally, because I really wasn't, I wasn't as much of a talker as I am now. <laughs> so um, for sure I wasn't. But when I started to find freedom in speaking up for myself is honestly when the physical abuse occurred. And so in that same marriage, um, I wound up pregnant. I, I stayed married. I was with this person for 12 years. He was basically my high school sweetheart, except for he wasn't in high school. And, um, and so I grew up. Um, I started growing up and learning a little bit of myself while married to someone who didn't know himself. And so it was just another form of manipulation. And when I wouldn't um, comply of physical abuse. Um, I go into a lot of detail in the book of just the type of turmoil, but, but just the humiliation factor, breaking all of my items um, to the point where I didn't identify myself because I, I look around the room and there's nothing that I brought to the table because anytime he got angry, he would break my things and not his things. So just the mental games that eventually grew into the physical. And in the midst of that relationship, I did wound up getting pregnant. And it's one of those things where I never thought I could get pregnant. I was like one of the relatives that was still not pregnant. Not like that was a bad thing, but it's just everybody else had kids. <laughs> and I was, um, you know, in, in my 20s, kind of young 20s, but I was still married and it was like, that's the next step. And um, I had had a miscarriage here and there. So when I did, I didn't know I was pregnant. So we really kind of thought I couldn't get pregnant. And so when I did, it was such a huge, tremendous shock to the family. Um, and, you know, just the joy of knowing that you're able to bring a, 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 a human into the world. And so at five, um, a, a little before five months pregnant, when um, I started having complications, I had no idea that I had, um, that I would have complications pregnancies throughout my life. And so um, what occurred with that is, it's just I had what's called an incompetent cervix, won't go into too gross detail there. But I wound up um, being in the hospital for um, two weeks on and off, trying to stay pregnant and keep the baby um, inside me. Her name was Kiara. And um, after a strong battle and taking every medicine that you could take um, um, to try to help, um, she, she wound up being born very premature and um, actually was um, just at one pounds, I believe one pounds, three ounces. And um, she lived for a strong five hours. And I just remember in that moment of her um, fighting for her life, while I was in the room, still unable to hold her, I hadn't even held her yet, I just remember thinking, God, I don't want my baby to have to suffer. Like, I don't want her to have to go through this pain to live. And I didn't know, but at the time, my ex-husband was praying the same thing. I hate to see her su um, suffering so much to try to heal, and the doctors are working so hard. And so um, hours later, she passed away. And um, I got some consolation in knowing that both of us were on the same page as far as we didn't want her to have to suffer. No parent wants their child to suffer. But it was just the most, I mean, anybody who's experienced it would know there are words that you really can't, you, don't, you just don't have the words. But the best way I can say it was the most horrendous pain that I've ever experienced in my life. And I was very angry at God. I didn't understand why he would allow me to carry a child inside me just for it to be taken away from me. And so honestly, that was the first time in my life that me and God had a real genuine conversation. 
And my my godfather, he's one that always told me, God already knows what you're thinking, so you might as well share it. There's no need in holding it inside. And I remembered him telling me that, and I just remember just me and God, and and I just had to tell him how I felt and the anger and the frustration and the pain that I felt of losing my child. But even in the midst of that moment, I had to still remember that God is God and that um, he is still superior. He is still knowing all and that my ways are not his ways and my thoughts are not his thoughts. And just I had to make a decision that either I was going to walk with him or I wasn't. And so I chose to make it well with my soul and to find faith in who I believe God is. And um, and and yeah, and, and just walked with him hand in hand, believing that he was with me in the middle. And um, eventually the experience is there. Um, and I still get a little sad about it, but there's more joy in the memory now. And I'm able to share with my children and um, and we keep her spirit alive. And I even have a frame in my house with her. Um, pieces of her hair um, that the nurses um, framed and her fingerprints and her handprints framed on my wall. And it goes to every home that, that I go. And my children know that she was their sister and her name was Kiara. She was a person. She was a human. She was alive and, and I'll forever love her. So after Kiara and, and all the other issues that you've encountered and, and the abuse and so forth. Do you, do you, I, this is just kind of a side note, but do you live sometimes or, or, or did you in the past kind of bracing yourself like something was going to happen? Is that, does, do you resonate with that? Yeah, for sure. And even now I catch myself when things are going good. Like right now I'm in a, a very blessed season and I know that things are all seasons. It's always changing. So I know that that's biblical, but absolutely not so much now. But I still catch myself saying, OK, things are going too good. What's about to happen? Right. Um, it's just um, unfortunately, I know um, I know in my past, though, it was so controlling to where I wouldn't want to try new things. I wouldn't want to allow new people in. I wouldn't want to think too positive. And um, I was really a very pessimistic person because I think it was actually a way to shield me because there was so much tragedy. There was just so much tragedy um, surrounding my life. It really felt like um, don't, don't hope for too much because you'll just be disappointed. And so I lived... Yeah space of no hope um, and always expecting the worst um, versus what God would want us to do, which is to have hope and believe and faith that he's going to work something out for for us for the good. I, I just, it was hard for me to grab on a, a hold on to that. Yeah. And, and I would assume that the father, you know, thing you know the, the uh, you know some people call it the father wound but I mean obviously you had two abusive stepfathers and and I think that that's so significant in uh, that relationship and then if it's if it's abusive I had a mentor one time tell me he said you know if you if you had a bad father God's nothing like him if you had a good father God's even better you know um it, but I think it can be tough, and I think it's probably documented in psychology and whatnot that 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 father wound, that father relationship, is something that's really a big deal. 
how have you how have you um, moved through that father thing? Because you know we we hear it all the time. You read the scripture; it's talking about a heavenly father. It just happens, to, and so every some. I mean, I've met some people that every time they hear that word, they break. They're like, "Whoa!" You know, I don't because of their life. You know, but talk about that. Absolutely agree because it's a connection situation. So for me, I couldn't connect to what a father was. And I don't, I haven't shared it often because I felt like it sounded silly, but I didn't have my, my biological father in my life. The only um, identity that I had in regards to a father were people that had abused me. So when I would read the scriptures about how God was going to, was supposed to be my father on, on a great end, it was hard for me to connect to what that looked like. However, I will say, because my desperation for somebody to listen to me was so strong, a desperation to feel connected to somebody was so was so strong that I still had a relationship with God. So it didn't matter that he I couldn't um, relate to the father part. I could relate to his comfort. And I could relate to um, uh, really a, a bigness is his comfort and and just um, knowing that somehow, some way he's keeping me safe and he's keeping my mind. And I think a lot of people take that for granted, peace of mind. But he kept my peace of mind where, honestly, I could have lost my mind. And so I could relate to that. So that was enough to carry me through other situations. But to your point, absolutely. It took a long time. And honestly, I would say even to last year, when I first um, began a relationship again with my father, did I begin to understand how beautiful the relationship, relationship can be between God and myself? Because the relationship was, has been beautiful with my father. And that's a lot to say coming from where I've, I've come from and us come, how we've, we've come from together. But it's such a beautiful and awesome and I get giddy like a little girl and it's like, oh my God, my God, it's just so weird for me. <laughs> just so weird. Um, yeah, that's a new space for me. But just knowing that, it helps me to relate better to even that much more is God proud of me. Even that much more do I mean um, so much to him. And um, I don't know, I'm just in awe of that mm. moment in itself. How did you reconnect with your real father? Sheesh. So um, we, um, you, you know, me, me and my my um, father, we had a relationship that was similar to if you were in, um, you you worked with somebody, you saw them in the halls, and you, you kind of thought they was a decent person, but you didn't know them per se. And so you speak if you pass them in the halls at work. But then when you're out on a weekend and you see them, you say hi, but then after that, you have nothing to talk about. Well, that's truly how our relationship was, in my view. Um, and we lived in the same community. He wasn't living in another state. Um, he he was um, battling his own addictions, which kept him out of my life at the time. I knew of that, but it did nothing to heal my wounds um, and the ones that kept building because of his issues. And so I, um, after so long of trying back and forth and it just falling and me growing in bitterness and it just falling and, and people pushing me to have a relationship with, with him and me trying for the sake of people, um, but I wasn't ready in my heart because I was angry 
angry. And I didn't know how to communicate that anger. I didn't have the words to articulate it. So I would do behavioral stuff. And I didn't let him walk me down the aisle when I got married because that's what you get for not being in my life. So take that. Um, I went through many years of that and um, to a point where really it was just Fatima. It's just best for him to not even be in my life. My kids thought he was dead, not because I told them, just because we never talked about him. So my son was like, I thought he was dead. Um, and so I um, honestly, it was through um, a couple of years ago where, uh, or a year ago, where I really start to do a deep dive into me into who I was and into who God was trying to help me be. At the time, I thought that I was losing my mind, but I really look at it as it was a form of soul healing. God was trying to get my attention. And so as I started peeling back those layers, which I talk about um, a, a lot um, in the book, but I started peeling back those layers and it was able. I was able to stop looking at how, what the things people have done to me, but also the parts that I played. And when I got to that place, is when I had to look at my relationship with my father. And so I actually, through some strategic steps, I was able to write down the specific things that had happened between me and him that had hurt me and that I felt had followed me through our relationship as far as damage and how I look at men. And I was able to determine, did I play a part or was this all his responsibility? And once I worked through that exercise, just me and the paper, then I reached out and I asked if he'd be willing to have a discussion. And it was the first time that we had talked in, shoot, almost, four, I don't know, a lot of years. And so 15, 20 years. And he was at a place where he had already went through some accountability steps himself through the programs that he had been in. So he understood this step. So when we came together, he was in a position to hear me, not fight me not fight my experience, but hear my experience. And so in that moment, we were both in a place where we were able to say, you know what? There could be a possibility that I may have misunderstood something and that he may have misunderstood something. We came to a place where we could be open-minded. It didn't mean that his feelings wasn't hurt when he didn't walk me down the aisle. It didn't mean that my feelings wasn't hurt when he wasn't there when I graduated from high school. It just meant we're common with a fresh perspective and we're going to talk. And so I was able to share those experiences and in, at the end of it, really in the midst of that openness, I could feel God's presence in the, in the room. And I feel like I saw a miracle before my eyes. And now because of that conversation, we talk um, almost every Sunday, we have a standing um, session where we come together on Zoom and we talk. And for the first time, um, he came in August to where I live. And uh, we had our first uh, dad and daughter date, which was like so weird mm. <laughs> for me because I never had that before. And I'm like in my 40s and I'm all giddy and nervous about having a date with my dad. And um, But really, I guess what I want to say is he didn't fight where I was at. And he didn't fight against my experiences. He just said, I have a reason why I made those decisions, but I can't change your experience because of those decisions. And, and we both were able to open up our hearts to forgiveness. Mm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and you forgave each other. Is that gave each other. And it's a process though, but we also, for me, um, being the one that felt the most hurt, which he would attest to that. He would agree. 
I had to make sure that in the midst of approaching this relationship that I set boundaries and that I set expectations, not guarded boundaries. Like if you chew your gum wrong, that's it. The wall goes back up. Uh-huh. No, but a but but being able to stand firm and say, if something hurts me, that I'm going to give him an opportunity to to hear it and respect that he'll be able to handle it. So I'm going to come to the table as a grown up and have an adult conversation with my father. And he in turn is going to be open to receive what I share because I am an adult and I'm not a child and he can't talk to me like I'm a child. He missed those years. So we had to reinvent our relationship and Mm. we're constantly working on it. And we made a decision that it's up to both of us. It's not one-sided. If I want the relationship, I got to work for it. If he wants the relationship, he has to work for it. And in that, we hold each, um, each other accountable. And it has it has made a, a space for my kids to have a grandfather, for a legacy to be to, to, to going because I opened up my heart to forgiveness. And I never thought, ever, <laughs> I want to make sure you hear me. <laughs> Never thought that that was that that was an option for my life. As a matter of fact, when I, when I did a program called Celebrate Recovery, one of the first things they had me do was write down two impossible that I felt God could never do for me. Number one, down. And so to see that and be able to go back to that piece of paper and look at it, you can't tell me what God can't do. Wow. Yeah, that is beautiful. And so one of the things I was uh, thinking about as you're talking also is, is kind of just about the idea of identity. You know, it just seems like in life we can go through and we can end up with this huge stack of fake IDs, you know, in our wallet that, and especially somebody that's been through what you've been through, when you're called names, labeled, branded, made to feel less than, made to feel unworthy, made to feel whatever. And I think everybody has their own journey in that area. But I, but I just think we, we, you know, we end up with these fake IDs. It's not who we are, but it's who we feel like, or we're told we were or whatever it would be. And it just seems like such a liberating and amazing, powerful thing to be able to say, okay, I'm taking my stack of fake IDs and I'm trading them in, you know, for the real one. Yeah, but it's a process. Yeah, it was definitely a process. Um, I really feel like, number one, I had to unbusy my life to be able to hear what God was saying to me. I was so busy running, running, running. Even if that meant running for God, I was running. I wasn't standing still to hear God trying to reach out to me. And so I spent so many years stuck in a space where, what the things that happened to me, which are valid things that happened to me, but attaching my identity to that, that I am, um, that I, that I, and so I'm a victim or I'm a, I'm a wife. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not worth anything because my husband had affairs on me or because I didn't get the promotion that I worked so hard for. So now I'm a failure. All these things I attached my name to or that people attach my name to. I said, well, I don't see anything else out there. So, yeah, I, I, I'll stay attached. And so when God started getting my attention is when my life slowed down. I actually went through a relocation to another state. 
and it slowed my life down. And it appeared that I had everything financially that I that I wanted, everything that tangibly I should say that we view as success. I had those things. My family seemed ha my family was happy. Everybody was happy except for me. And my life had slowed down, and I felt something's wrong with me. What is going on with me? And in that moment where I felt like I was losing my mind is when God got a hold of me and he began to help me see who I really am. But in order to see that, I had to first get rid of all the stuff that people had said I was. And that took tough work. It took me having to peel back the layers, being willing to face the hard truth about my life, not about what people did to me, that stays. We already know that. But about when did I decide in my mind that this is what I was going to run with? We are all held accountable for which we understand. We are all given the ability to change our mind. So when did I accept it and say, okay, this is what it is? So I had the terms, or, or I say me and God had a come to Jesus moment. And this is the things that he was showing to me. And so in that, I had this revelation, which is crazy because... I should have known this my entire life, but my name means daughter of a prophet. Um, the Islamic um, name, Islamic meaning of my name is daughter of a prophet. My mom, we're from Vegas, okay? <laughs> we're from Vegas, and my mom saw a little girl, and she was a beautiful little girl when when she when she had me. It was a beautiful little girl that was trying to peer into the into the room to see the babies that her sister had just had. And you know, back in the day, they had the little windows. And so she couldn't see and she couldn't go in. So they kept picking her up and, sh and trying to let her see. My mama thought she was the most beautiful girl. So and, and our skin was the same tone. So she named me Fatima and she had no idea. And years later, when people are messing up my name and I'm feeling like, God, I hate my name. An Islamic, a friend that we had who was Muslim told me what my name meant. In the Islamic culture, it means daughter of a prophet. And so at the time I was a Buddhist, we were Buddhists. I grew up a Buddhist till I was 19 years old. And this mm -hmm. is, so I felt good finally that I could say, well, you could talk about me, but my name means daughter of a prophet. So it's special. <laughs> I got a title, I got something to say. But it wasn't until truly like maybe a couple years ago when I was really, God was really starting to heal some things started awesome um, miracles in my life and being able to replay my life and what he has brought me out of that I realized, you know what? I really am the daughter of a prophet, the most high prophet. Yes, I am. I'm. Mm. God had already identified me. He had already said who I was. It was already on me at birth. I didn't accept it. And that is what my book talks about. Uh, all the different identities that I had throughout my life that I latched onto. And it wasn't until I got to this place of freedom well, I, was I able to say, you know what? I am who God says I am. I am beautiful. I am talented. I am awesome sauce. I am fierce. <laughs> you know, I am persistent. I am just, I'm a powerhouse. <laughs> yes, you are. I'm kind of awesome sauce myself. Yes, you are. Yeah, no, I think about it. Uh, that's so good. Oh my gosh, I'm so grateful. I mean, do you do you feel free today? Yes. I mean, I know it's a process, but, but I mean, how do you how are you doing now? 
I feel so free. I really do. And I didn't realize what freedom was like until I was. And so I never could even use that word, I don't believe. And if I did use it, I used it prematurely. There is something about being your story back. But to say, I'm going to stop allowing people to claim who I am, regardless of what they think. Giving people the misunderstand me, really giving them the freedom, meaning not trying to defend myself all the time. Writing this book definitely put me to where I had to recognize that there were going to be some people that were going to be mad at me, that I may hurt some people's feelings, that um, the things that I share specifically about my mother, decisions that she made. Um, that there and, and people with um, in the generation of the silent generation, some things that are discussed, the fact that I'm talking about it so candidly in this book, because that's my story. And in order for me to share my true story, I had to share that piece. But I had to come to terms and I wrestled with that. I say like a Isaac and the angel. I wrestled with the fact that I couldn't have it both ways, that I had to. I was going to. Um, feel, uh, follow what God is telling me to do and share my story in the way that he wants me to share it or I'm going to stay mm -hmm. loyal to the secrets and mm -hmm. we are as sick as our secrets mm -hmm. my therapist is the one that helped me get to that place and she asked me Fatima which one would you would you regret um, not telling your story or would you regret losing those people um, that are so dear to you? Which one would you regret most? And I had to sit there and be honest with myself. And, and that moment is when my freedom came because I made a conscious decision that I would feel more regret not telling my story. And so when I wrote it and put it all out there, um, me and my kids were giddy and my family supported me. And and we, we screamed um, when we saw it on Facebook selling. And Donnie, I felt like I was on top of a building like you see on TV and the folk is on top of the building and they're screaming, I'm free. Well, that is, <laughs> that's the feeling that I carry with me every day. And if it is for nothing more, um, I believe that writing this book was an extension of my therapy, but more than anything, it was an extension of my freedom. So beautiful. Wow. And I'm Dean, by the way, Donnie's standing behind the camera. <laughs> No, no. It's a, speaking of fake IDs. Um, Dean, I'm sorry. Donnie should probably be hosting the program, if you want to know the truth. <laughs> I'm sorry. Look, folks um, to the whole show have been like, and she got his name wrong, and she just talking. <laughs> no, see, but see, we keep it real here. So if people watching and they felt they saw that you said the wrong name, uh, then they're going to feel awkward until I address it. So <laughs> Um, why did you tell me why why did you write the book I mean again I, I wrote it because I really felt like it was an extension of my freedom and it was something that once God showed me that that's what I was supposed to do that it just made all the sense in the world but I've always loved writing as a kid um, I would write it was actually a way for me to get those thoughts out because I didn't talk much ha, it's a surprise I know but um, I, I, I didn't talk much at all I really internalized most of my life.
And so even when I look back on my journals, I don't really like to read them because they're just filled with sadness. Um, and it actually stopped me from writing after so long. And so during um, going through therapy and, and going through um, um, bi my Bible study program, um, Celebrate Recovery, they encouraged writing. You had to write to peel back the layers. And so I just started getting that love back. There's a um, there's a step where at the end of this um, step study program of Celebrate Recovery that it's a nine month program. Once you go through through it, they encourage you to write your story because you want to be able to recognize how how far off you were when you started the program and where you are now. Progress over perfection. So I wrote it out. I wrote pretty much this story out, and I was given the opportunity to share it um, at uh, at other meetings, which was awesome in itself. But once I wrote it out and I read it, I said, that's a book. Oh, my God. All this stuff. And it was a serendipitous moment. I love that word. My husband hates it. <laughs> I love that word. It was a serendipitous moment for me, like a, a fortunate accident. It was I feel like I stumbled into um, God's gift for me. I stumbled into what he already had planned. I just had to make it to that place. He's the alpha and omega. And in this part of my life, this was that ending piece. But I was at the beginning and trudging through the beta testing prop uh, uh, process of finding my way and being tried and trying to figure out what was going on with me. I'm losing my mind. Lord, help me. OK, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to have faith. I'm going to go through this program. I'm going to go to therapy. These people ain't going to get in my head. OK, God, they need to get in my head. Just all of that stuff. Right. Until I got to the end where he was like, it took you long enough. <laughs> so, um, but honestly, I mean, I really think that it was just um, predestined for me to write it. And I, I really feel like it has helped me in every bit of way to um, get extra therapy by reliving those situations and even the emotional parts. Um, there were some moments where I tussled at night after writing some chapters because I couldn't sleep. Um, but it really helped me to process the emotional parts to my life. Beautiful. The book is The Prescription is in the Dirt. Can you tell us about the title real quick since some people may be curious? So the title, The Prescription is in the Dirt. Um, the dirt is honestly what we've been talking about. The dirt is taboo topic that, that people shy away from in the church or that we shy away from in our family when we say what happens in our home stays in our home, even when it's horribleness and, and we don't allow um, for healing to begin in our home. It's the things that I've shared about my, 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 my child and my burns and all the other host of things that we've tapped on. It's that it was my dirt. Those were the things that were keeping me in bondage and um, from not getting freedom. And the thing about dirt is if you're not careful, it will bury you and you will be a walking zombie basically going throughout your life, not fulfilled, um, just dead on the inside from your family and friends and people that love you. Um, but also if you allow God to get in there and do the healing and, and turn and stir that dirt into soil, then just like the book cover where you see the plants growing up, something beautiful will be manifested. We just have to have the courage and the bravery to face our stuff. So great. The prescription is in the dirt. I encourage people to, to get it. We're getting it. We're in the process of getting it right now. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to read it. I got to tell you. The book's available 
paperback and ebook on amazon.com. Isn't everything in the world available on amazon.com? It appears so, but just in case people don't know. <laughs> yeah, we'll mention it. Um, so that, that's where the book is. But, but you, you identified three, you call them the three key foundations um, about everyone needs a safe place to fall. A victim mentality must change to a victor mentality. And then the third one, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to remain that way. I think all three of these are wonderful, but elaborate on one of them or your thought on kind of how those crystallized in this process. Well, I think being a victim and changing um, your victim mindset to a victim mindset kind of coincides with the third one, just being able to make up your mind that you're going to change the narrative of your story and being able to say that just because these things happen to me, this is the way that I'm going to choose to live the rest of my life. We can't change what happened in the past. We can still respect those experiences. And I really think it's critical to work through the, that emotional process that's attached with those experiences. But after that, we got to make a decision on how we want our life to be. And in order to do that, we have to stop playing that swan song and we have to make better decisions. Um, so those kind of go together. But I think what's majorly critical is that I have I had like-minded people. Um, my faith is to me. I had people who believed the same and who were trying to heal their wounds and grow too, who were around me and who could support me and who could help me to find the help that I needed through therapy um, and just having somebody to talk to. So a safe place to fall is very, I think, critical. I don't think that I would have made it as far as I have. I have if it was not having somebody could look past my tears, look past my crazy hairdos at times, look past my anger and my rage that would come out and spit on them, that they could look past that and see the heart, my heart condition and pray for me and pray with me and help counsel me um, and, and help me to get the help that I need. Sometimes that's not your family. Sometimes it's not your mother, your father. Sometimes it's not even your spouse. Sometimes it's gonna have to be a therapist. So if someone needs that help, and they know that they're just one hair away from running their car through the intersection, like honestly I was, it's very important to reach out to a medical professional and, and get that help. But a tribe is who undergirds us. The Bible says we're supposed to bear the infirmities of the weak. So we all need that. We all should be bearing each other's infirmities. Oh, so great. Yeah. And, you know, it's something that I think can take hold in religion, in a religious community, that it's not OK to be not OK, uh, which I think can be, you know, there, there's different ways of seeing the church or, you know, a religious body. You know, one way is it's kind of a museum of saints. Yes. And another way is it's a hospital for sinners, <laughs> you know, and I think oftentimes we can end up you know, going to what we think is the museum and where everybody's got it all together. And I'm not going to be the one that's got problems, <laughs> which meanwhile, they're all addictions everywhere you look, you know, there's a dick, there's stuff going on, but there's not a culture that says it's okay. Hey, it's okay. Nobody's, nobody's got it all. And, and I think you mentioned celebrate recovery. I think celebrate recovery. I think Alcoholics Anonymous have this part wired that everybody in the room is screwed up you know <laughs> yeah welcome to the club welcome to the club <laughs> you know? 
and, and that part is, I mean, talk about freedom, man, I could be myself. Yeah. And yeah. I did something worse and I'm better than this guy, but he's that, you know, I mean, we, but we're all in this together. That is a powerful thought. But I also want, yeah, I also want to say in that though, it also teaches that just because we're all in the room sharing our rawness, sharing our truth, and we're so comfortable with it, doesn't mean that the next person is. And we have to respect that. We have mm. to beat them. And we have to show the grace of Christ like he has shown us all the way through that moment. And I think that's critical that sometimes to your point that we have this museum like situation where we don't feel like we feel like we have to be perfect. Basically we have to hide our sin. And my, my godfather always taught me, and I'm so grateful he taught me this, that the church is nothing but a spiritual hospital. And so that's mm. how I've always tried to view the people in the church, even if they think they're perfect. Church is just a hospital. I, I love that Celebrate Recovery and the other programs. They definitely um, shared that with us now. Okay, Fatima, you're all healed, but don't go out there talking about, ooh, I see your issue. <laughs> you need some help. It's right. like, pray. If you see the issue, pray for them. Don't, don't judge them, you know? And, and, and that's what I'm here to do. Um, my goal really is to try to walk alongside people and to just help them to get the healing um, and just be some type of a seed of healing, give the opera seed of healing for them so that they can also um, start their, their soul journey. Talk for a minute. We're, we're running a little bit short on time, but talk about self-love, self-care. This is kind of something my wife is trying to teach me. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I was at the dermatologist this morning, for example, in case you're curious. Um, <laughs> I did ask him to not freeze this spot on my lip because I told him I had a TV taping. So I got out of it. But I'm gonna <laughs> um, self-care, self-love, you know, people hear love, self-love and they think, Oh no, I can't love myself. I'm supposed to be humble. But then the truth is, is you can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't love yourself. <laughs> so talk, talk about that for a second. Yeah, I, also, I, I honestly think that sometimes we view, um, we mask the lack of self-love with being humble. So we think that if we don't tell ourselves good job or we don't celebrate ourselves, that that's being humble. And if we do, we're doing it, we, we aren't inside God's will. And I've actually been learning that recently um, with the book and everything, just trying to learn how um, to celebrate myself because it's nothing that I've ever really done. I've always worked based on accomplishment, like a task. And once I do it, I mark it off and move on. And, and again, that's just another part of emotional connection, being okay with celebrating myself. That's a part of my self-love is understanding that it's okay to say, Fatima, that you did a good job. It's okay to tell people that, and that doesn't mean you're bragging. It means that you're taking a moment to, to enjoy your, what you've done and, and feel the fulfillment. I think that a lot of times it's easier for us to do it for other people than it is to do it for ourselves. And, and, and like to your point, in order for us to truly, honestly um, be able to be there selflessly for somebody else, we first have to learn to be selflessly um, there for ourselves. And, and honestly, as contradictory as it sounds, that does mean sometimes being selfish. That does mean sometimes saying, no, I can't do that because I need to have some rest time. I need to have some prayer time with God. or I need to have a spa day or I need to go to the dermatologist with my wife and do all this. <laughs> right. He just looked at me like, you know, the freckles and the, you know, it's, just, it's overwhelming. Um, 
the prescription is in the dirt is the title of Fatima's book. You know, I have a, we have a special needs daughter hearing you talk a second ago. We have a special needs daughter who, you know, there's no filter and she's pure as a driven snow, loving, wonderful. And I talk about her just about every program, but one of the things you, you said, you know, this false humility kind of thing, right? She's very comfortable with who she is. She doesn't think she's any better than anybody else, but she doesn't think she's any worse than anybody else either. And so we'll have this thing where I'll say, Ella Clary, she does this physical program every day. So yesterday she was doing it. She did, you know, eight hours of this program with my wife and she's doing standing and doing these ladders and this breathing stuff. And, that, that, that. and, I, and I said, Ella Clary, you are a rock star. And she said, yes, I am. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you know, that but don't you is, want to encompass that? Don't you I mean, want to? We are. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. I teach and my kids that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to, to actually, and, and, you know, the Bible says, don't think of yourself as better than others or higher than you ought. But man, you know, who we are in, in with God in, in the, his perspective is unbelievable. And so and be we can confident in that. We shouldn't be hanging our heads, you know, Fatima. I mean, it's kind of exciting. Um, I agree. I agree. Absolutely. We should be confident in what he does through us and be humble to know that it is him doing it. So absolutely. Yes. Beautiful. I want to give a shout out to your husband, Thomas, <laughs> and Mark Anthony, Jeremiah, and Jonathan. Yeah. I want to tell you, if you're watching, you have an amazing mother. <laughs> so you better obey. I'm in California, but I know where Ohio is. Okay? <laughs> I appreciate that. Make sure to tell that to my husband too. Thomas, Hubby. you too. Uh, thank you. Thank and you by, so by the way, so I'm Donnie Wilson. Uh, <laughs> I'm Dean Wilson. She is Fatima, daughter of the prophet. Yes. And a princess in every way. Thank you thank so you for coming on, Fatima. Thank you. I appreciate it, Dean. I really do. Thank you. God bless you guys. Thank you. We'll see you all next time.